0: Good afternoon. Uh, I think we're probably going to have a lot of stragglers coming in, so we'll uh, just welcome them into the empty seats. A lot of people have told me they're coming, but I think they went over to the brunch, so they're probably still eating. Uh, welcome back. Are any of you here for the first time? Into the Okay. I have a um, handout here that I'd like you to have. This has um, journal... Guidelines because all of my work is based on keeping a personal journal. And the uh, exercises in all of my books are uh, focused on a journal process. And the journaling involves drawing feelings out, writing, and writing with both hands using the dominant and the non dominant. And so I'll be talking about those techniques uh, this afternoon. Um, and I'm talking about them in the context of what I've been discussing this whole weekend, inner family work. Okay. So just to review, inner family work involves accessing one's inner child, which I define as our sense of our body, our experience of our body physically. So that includes pleasure and pain. Any sensory awareness that we have of being in our body is a inner, is an inner child state. Uh, the inner child is also our emotional awareness and experience. So whenever we're having an emotion, whether we're aware of it or not, that's our inner child. When we become aware of it, then we are engaging in conversation with the inner child. We're letting the inner child tell us that it feels sad or glad or depressed or joyful or whatever. Uh, The inner child also is the core of our creative self. There's no such thing as creativity without an active inner child. And the inner child is also the core of our spiritual sensibilities. The inner child in us knows that there is a spiritual realm, an invisible realm that we can have direct experience of. So those are the four really important definitions that I work with in inner family work. In addition to getting in touch with the inner child, in the body, in the emotions, in the creative expression, and in spirit... We need parents, because where there is a child, there must be parents. And in my system, there are four parents. There's a nurturing parent whose sole job is to nurture one's inner child. Not outside, but one's inner child. That's its sole purpose. And it is a, an energy. It's a subpersonality. It's an archetypal energy that we all carry. It's part of the human condition. And that part of us is the part that can really listen to the inner child's needs with compassion and no judgment. And it is responsible for making sure that the child gets those needs met. So if we need more rest, if we need healthier food, if we need walks in the park, if we need vacations, whatever it is we need to nurture the body, the emotions, the creativity, and the spirit, the nurturing parent is on the job when it is being brought in to the inner family. It's on the job to make sure that the inner child's needs are met. The protective parent is a totally different energy. It's a part of us, it's very impersonal, and it's the part that many of us use in business. Okay? And it's a part that's very unemotional, it doesn't get hooked into other people's emotions, and it is the true cure for codependence because if the nurturing parent keeps turning outward and taking care of everybody else's inner child the protective parent if it is taking care of our inner child will step in and say uh uh we need to set boundaries and limits so the mantra of the protective parent is is boundaries and limits on other people's demands on other people's problems on other people's inner child that is reaching out for us to take care of it it is not our business to take care of somebody else's inner child it's not our business it is their business they have their own inner family they need to learn to take care of their own inner child and codependence sets in when we rescue other people's inner child somebody gets upset we run in and give them whatever they want we don't want them to cry we don't want them to be upset we don't want them to be angry And so we will give them whatever they want just to pacify them. And uh, that's the road to codependence. So the work that I do in inner family healing is really a healing method for codependence, but also for addiction, because addiction is caused by our trying to shut the inner child up if we don't want to feel our body and if we don't want to feel our feelings, we will narcotize the inner child. We'll give it drugs, we'll give it alcohol, we'll give it whatever addiction we can grab onto to keep it quiet. And then, of course, after we've engaged in our addiction, the child is even louder. And worse than that, the inner critic, who is the third parent, really steps in and does a number on us. The critical parent is the part of us that gets tape-recorded in our brain by our outside environment, and when we are verbally abused, physically abused, abused in any way, the inner critic is learning the message that we are open to being abused, and it continues to abuse us even after the abuser is gone. So it will tell us some of the same things the abuser told us, that we're no good, that we're worthless and we deserve what we're getting. Um, And even if that isn't spoken, the behavior says it. So even if the abuser isn't saying anything like that, the actual physical abuse is sending the message that you're worthless, you deserve this, and you're nothing. You don't count. And so the inner critic learns that from behavior and from words and it carries that on throughout our lives. The critical parent. So that's the third parent. The fourth parent is our higher power. And the higher power belongs to us. It's not up there in the sky somewhere. It's not an old white man with a long beard. It is our divine self. Okay? It's our inheritance as spiritual beings and that power exists within us it's not doesn't belong to anybody else we each have it and so that higher power is our inner wisdom it's an eternal voice of wisdom and consolation and strength and we have that available to us at all times the tools that I use in my method give us direct access to all of those inner parents and the inner child. But it also helps us to disidentify from any one of them. I am not my inner child. I am not my protective parent, nor my nurturing parent, nor my critical parent. I am none of those. I am way more than any of that. Way more. But I have an administrative self, a core self, whose job it is to make decisions in my life based on the needs of my inner child and all of my other needs as well there's lots more subpersonalities than just this inner family but I've boiled it down to that because I feel that's the core and that's the work we need to do on ourselves and when we do that work on ourselves we heal our relationships with others now I'm going to talk today about our relationships with others in relation to this inner family work The tools I use for inner family work have to do with working on oneself, not trying to change anybody else, not trying to fix anybody else, but working on our relationship with our own inner family. So how am I treating my inner child today? And this is not about the inner child of the past. This is about my body today, my emotions today, my creativity today, and my connection with spirit today, my soul today. It's not about what happened to me when I was a kid, teenager, or any other time. It's about right now. In my book, Recovery of Your Inner Child, which is my inner family guidebook, I don't get to healing the wounds of the past until way late in the book. Because unless you're dealing with your inner family today, your body today, your emotions today, you're not ready to look back to the past Because if you go back into the past and you haven't developed a strong inner family today on a daily practice, listening to and taking care of your inner family, if you go back to the past, your inner critic will come in and absolutely blast you out of the water. If you go back and uncover early memories and early experiences of trauma, your inner inner critic will just come in and wipe you out. And it'll say, well, this just proves that you're no good. Look at what happened to you. Look what they did to you. They would only do that to you if you were useless and hopeless and if you were a mess. And the critic just pounces on you all over again. So you've got to get a handle on all of that before you can deal with relationships in the outer world. Because if you're not nurturing your own inner child and protecting it, setting limits and boundaries, what you do is you go into relationships looking for a nurturing parent and a protective parent. And that's what most falling in love is all about. Most falling in love is, oh, I have found the perfect parent. It isn't conscious. It's totally unconscious. But this person dotes on me. You know, he thinks I'm marvelous no matter what I do. This is the early stages, of course, until the honeymoon's over. And uh, we talk baby talk to each other, which is another sign of regressing into this inner child state, but putting all the power for parenting on the other person. And so as long as that person is playing out the role of the perfect parent, loving, doting, protecting, everything's fine until the other person isn't doing that. If they go into their critical parent, that's when the honeymoon's over. If they go into their dependent child and they want you to be, in the case of a a man with a woman, they want the woman to be the loving mother while they remain in an infantile child state, then the honeymoon's over. And that's when women say, you know, this is just getting to be too much of a burden. Or he's criticizing me all the time. I can't stand it and that's when people want to get out I call that the teeter-totter okay? because politically it's a one-up, one-down model even when the parent is loving it's still one-up and one-down because it's a parent-child dynamic so politically it's way out of balance and I use the teeter-totter as an example because it just goes back and forth like that once you get on the teeter-totter you can't get off unless you know what you're doing and you get conscious that that is what you're doing. okay? So yeah, it feels real good when you get on the in love teeter-totter and the other person's being wonderful and you think you found the adoring parent who will love you no matter what, unconditional love. You know, I don't know what that is. Unconditional love, I'm not sure about what that is because it gets misinterpreted on the teeter-totter into, I can behave as badly as I want and he's still going to love me. And he's even going to like my behavior. No, that's real unrealistic. <laughs> Very unrealistic. So the teeter-totter can be extricated from, but you've got to be doing your own inner family work in order to get off of it because you won't get off until you get conscious that that's what's going on the teeter totter leads to domestic abuse between a couple because if somebody is on the teeter totter and there's this imbalance you're going to have the raging parent beating up on the little vulnerable victim kid okay that's where that leads and so it just and then of course the abuser comes back on hands and knees apologizing and now he's the vulnerable child and he wants a mommy to take care of him and make everything okay by forgiving him. And See, I have a hard time with forgiveness because I, if somebody's behaved badly, they need to pay the consequences for their behavior. And you can't just put a Band-Aid on that. And so all of that phony forgiveness stuff that goes on in codependence and abusive relationships is a scam. It doesn't work. I've worked with enough abused women and men to know that all of that coming back with all that contrite behavior, oh, here are some flowers, sweetheart, I'm so sorry, you know, I didn't mean it. And do I need to tell you about this? You've lived through it. Yeah. I was drinking too much. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. All right. So once we become aware of the fact that we have to take care of our own inner child, we cannot change anybody else. Then we can do this inner work that gets us off the teeter-totter. And remember, look at the physics of a teeter-totter. It only takes one to get off to stop this movement. It only takes one. It doesn't take two. You don't have to drag your spouse into therapy. You get into therapy. How many people have I had say to me over the years, my husband needs to be here, my wife needs to be here, and I go, no, you need to be here, and you are here. Or my wife needs this book, or my husband needs this book. No, you need it. You work it. Set an example. Set an example. And stop preaching to everybody else about what they need to do. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So the inner work of inner family work pays huge dividends for us individually for our own peace of mind and our own sanity. But it pays huge dividends in relationships as well. So this is not just narcissistic, you know, I'm just going to work on myself kind of stuff. This affects everybody around you. When you get a handle on this. Yes. I I strongly believe that I think every child in this country should be given a journal. And I have a book up here, the Creative Journal for Children. I've got one for teens, which we ran out of. And I would give every child in this country a journal. And I would teach them how to do creative journaling. If I had my druthers, I would legislate that. And we've had it in school systems where we've had every child in almost an entire school system in South Texas from K through 12 keeping a creative journal. Because children need to learn how to honor their emotions and how to honor their physical needs, and how to do their own mental health work. And they can do it in a journal. And they can do it no matter how young they are because they can scribble their feelings out if they don't know how to write yet. It's a great academic tool because when they're writing about themselves, they're practicing writing. And we don't give any grades for the creative journal. The creative journal is completely grade free, and I will not take it into a school system unless they promise me that the teachers will not look at the journals and they will not give grades for journaling. And if they can't promise me that, I won't go into the district. We have been in several school districts, and those are our terms. And they play on our terms or they don't get it. Yes, uh huh. They can script, well, they can do sand therapy, but uh, journal is a lot easier. <laughs> in a school district you're not going to have sand therapy in classrooms my dear that's not going to happen yeah it'd be nice and I love play therapy and I'm an art therapist uh, and I work with all media but uh, the journal is a very simple tool to take into any school district in any classroom because it's a book it looks academic it looks like school work but it's personal growth work and it's preventive you know To me, you want to give kids tools for working on themselves without calling it therapy and making pathology out of it. You know, it's like this is just a health tool. Use it. Work with it. That's it. And you're not making the kid feel like there's anything wrong with him, you know, like he needs to do something different from other kids because he's got problems. It's like, no, everybody gets this journal. Everybody does this. And it's private, it's confidential, and it's a great way to develop the child's sense of their protective parent, because they are told there are limits and boundaries around this journal. It's like an extension of their bodies. You know, if this journal belongs to me and nobody can touch it, maybe that's true about my body, too. So maybe I'm going to be on guard if somebody tries to behave inappropriately with me physically. That's the conclusion that a lot of these children have drawn from working with journals. So they learn that, because nobody ever tells them, you have a right to have this, this belongs to you. If they get into a school district where this is mandated, then it's like, oh, okay, this does belong to me. And we've got ground rules on the wall, and I can point to them, and I can see on there, oh, this is confidential. Nobody gets to look at it, not even the teacher, not even my parents. And we have parent meetings. We tell them in advance, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. These are the academic gains that we've gotten from doing this in other school districts. 20 percentile point gains in most classrooms in our first pilot project compared to the rest of the district. In Garvey, you know the Garvey district? It's not that far from here. I did a program in 81-82 under a federal grant. And we had two pilot schools in the district. We outperformed the rest of the district so... Dramatically, that the it was sort of a stand and deliver story. The evaluations department thought we were cheating. They called the principals of both schools, and they said, what did you do over there with these CAPS tests and these CTBS tests? What do you mean, what do we do? Did you coach the kids on the answers? No, what are you talking about? The scores in your two schools were way too high. Way too high. Something wrong over there. The principals were really pissed off. I mean, they said, "What do you mean? Are you accusing us of cheating here?" And they called me up, and I just was furious. I mean, I just—I was furious at the notion that success would immediately be interpreted as dishonest. And so then we went back and we told them we had a special program in these two schools only. It was a federally funded scientific project monitored by Cal State LA's Education Department. And these are the only two schools in the district that had this program of journaling in every classroom, K through six, and that's the difference. Got any other questions? And then they just back down and shut up. But that's what happens when children are given the opportunity to really go inside, honor their feelings, honor their physical experiences, honor who they are, honor their creativity, because in our method, they're drawing and writing. They're doing both. They're using both sides of the brain. It's a phenomenal method for kids. So that's what I recommend. Anybody who is concerned about the mental health of your children, get them a blank book. If, depending on their age level, get them the creative journal for children or the one for teens. The one for children is written to adults working with kids. The one for teens is written directly to the teenager. You can put that book directly in a teenager's hands. Give them a blank journal, give them some felt pens. They're ready to go. And that's all you have to say. And teenagers love journals. I mean, that's what. Look at Anne Frank's diary. It's one of the most widely read books in the world. I think second to only to the Bible. You know, this is this has just a, been a hugely successful, internationally successful book. This little teenage girl has anybody seen the movie um, that was made about the school in Long Beach? True story, uh, Freedom Writers. Uh, rent the video, get the DVD. It's fabulous. It's a true story. You know, she just turned these kids around with journaling. It's a fabulous movie. We used have used it as a training film in my training program. Now, in terms of this journal process, how does it work with relationships? Okay, Because as I've said, you can't change anybody else. But in my book, The Power of Your Other Hand, we have a chapter on dialoguing with other people using my right-hand, left-hand dialogue method. And so what you do in that method is you actually talk to the other person and you let them respond with a non-dominant hand. And I'm going to read a dialogue for you. In chapter 8 of this book, The Power of Your Other Hand, which is my book about the uh, right-hand, left-hand writing and drawing method, there is um, a dialogue that a woman did with her father. And I think a lot of you are going to definitely relate to this um, dialogue that she had because not only does it show how somebody goes back in the past and writes about her feelings about a specific event but it also shows how the non-dominant hand literally pulls through some inner wisdom that her father's higher power probably could give her but in this personality in this lifetime he's not capable of so she started out with her right hand she's right handed and she, uh, the, the exercise that she was given to do as an assignment was go back to a time in childhood when you really felt abandoned, hurt, um, that you really were left out in your family. Um, there was a real lingering pain there about a specific event So she went back to a specific event when her father came home. There were two girls in the family, and um, mother was in a mental institution. So she didn't raise the girls, but the father did. And she said, Why didn't you give me anything when you brought my sister the compact? So this is a little compact with makeup in it. The girls are in their teens at this point. And with her non dominant hand, she lets the father answer. And he says, I didn't want you to wear makeup. If you were a little girl, now listen to the use of the, the nouns here. If you, are, if you are a little girl, you are safe for me to deal with. Okay, So he wants to keep her frozen in childhood. He didn't say if you were a little girl, if you are a little girl. These are very key words. When you were little, I brought you toys, clay, and balloons, but not grown-up things. When you were 15, I started to give you money because I could not buy you anything anymore. I did not know you anymore. You had life and I was dead. I am afraid of life. Can't you see that now? You would make me think about things I don't want to think about. Well, the sexual element here is pretty obvious. You don't have to be Freud to figure this out. Here is a man raising two teenage daughters. Okay. And they're starting to become young women. And she developed earlier than her sister did. So he did not want her to become a woman. And, of course, he probably had some sexual feelings about her. And if she didn't wear makeup and she stayed a little girl, then he didn't have to deal with his sexual feelings. So he says, "I, you know, th- uh, you, you made me think, think about things I didn't want to think about. And she said, what sort of things? And with h- her non-dominant hand, he says, I hated my life, but I could not debate it. I was too weak. I did not dare want anything except what I was supposed to want. That's why I travel so much now, because I want my life to be different. She was in her... F- 40s when she wrote this. So he was probably in his late 60s. And she says, Didn't you know how much you were hurting me? And he said, I didn't want to see you. I could not do anything to make you real to me. And then she says, Yet you resented me, you threw my things on the floor, you embarrassed me in front of your friends. You refused to see my needs. My sister was so obviously your favorite that even your own friends remarked on it. He says, I told myself you didn't need me. Now here's the case of a reverse role. If a parent says a child doesn't need them, then he's being the child. Because in the order of things, children are supposed to be able to need their parents. But he didn't want her to need him. So that reverses the roles. And you all know about that. And that's, that's out of the natural order of things. It's not supposed to be that way. So I told myself you didn't need me. You seemed so ready to grasp life. I was afraid of you. I wanted my peace and comfort, and I didn't want you interfering with it. If you didn't wear makeup or bother me, meaning arouse me sexually, if you didn't wear makeup, or bother me I could pretend you didn't exist so what kind of a message is that to a young girl she's becoming a young woman she's developing and her, her father suddenly just shuts her out ignores her she doesn't exist anymore and she says but I do exist and I'm carrying around a lot of extra weight that I don't want you always wanted to cover me up so I did it for you she gained weight I know we will never have a true loving relationship you're a poor pathetic lonely old man who even now won't talk about feelings I got gypped this is not what a father should be and yet I'm somewhat sorry for you because you've alienated almost everyone who tried to care about you I don't want you to have any more power over me our aunt told me she begged you to get a housekeeper for us and you wouldn't You have never been able to see anyone else's need. So at this point, you know, she's venting. She's just letting him have it. But he's not sitting there in person. This is all in her journal. He says, if I got a housekeeper, I'd have to admit I had no wife. I could not face that either, for then I would have had to admit my part in it. So he felt guilty about his wife being in a mental hospital permanently, and he took it out on the girls especially this girl. She says, So what am I supposed to do now? Now here's where his higher power comes through. And don't ask me rationally how this works, but I've seen it work so many hundreds of times that I know it works. He says, Rethink the past. Feel it the way it should have been. Make believe that you got the compact. You should have gotten one. Relive it in your mind with a proper ending. You're the only strong one of the four of us, the most beautiful and the wisest. You can still be what I could not and what we could not. Please only yourself, never mind what others say you should do. You will never hurt anyone if you live as you truly believe. Do it for me. I could not. Your mother could not. Your sister came closer but was satisfied with too little. The very thing I am afraid of is what will save you and carry you to great heights of love. In retrospect, Jill said that in this, doing this dialogue with her father, she said, writing privately in a journal, I could say things I couldn't say otherwise to my father. I could also get him to say things I couldn't get out of him in any other way. But I knew they were so. I knew this was the truth. I knew that was how he really felt deep down inside. I stopped analyzing and alibying for him and how unfairly he had treated me. I let my feelings out. When I did this, I realized that I had been helpless as a kid, but I'm not helpless anymore. There are other alternatives. That's the point. People should know this. My biggest breakthrough was in burying the victim. Yeah. Yeah. That was her biggest breakthrough. And she went on to study acting, which is something she'd always wanted to do. Uh, She lost a lot of weight. Um, She really found her true voice after doing that dialogue. The next time she saw her father, he said, I love you to her for the first time in her memory. All right? She never showed him the journal work. He knew nothing about it. Not at the conscious level. It is my belief that at the unconscious level, on the other hand, there is a communication that happens at the higher power level. And I can't give you a scientific explanation for it, but I can... If you want to call science observation, then I can say, flat out, 35 years of observation of clients and students and my own dialogues has shown me that there is a form of communication that happens at the higher power level that has nothing to do with any direct confrontation. Another example that's in the book is one that I experienced. I was teaching in the Garvey District, the program I told you about earlier. I was training teachers to do journaling in those two pilot schools. And we had a teacher in there who was just acting like a teenager. (laughs) She'd come in to staff workshops. She'd sit in the back of the room and giggle and be very disruptive. And I had to treat her like a teenager, and I just had to say, you know, if you're going to stay in the room, I'm going to need you to be quiet. If you want to talk, you need to leave. And um, she was just really, you know, a bothersome member of the staff. And all of my arts team who came in to train had trouble with her. She did the same thing with all of them. So, around Christmas time, we started the program in the fall. And um, around Christmas time, I went home and I was just going, What am I going to do with this chick? I mean, she's driving us all crazy. Do I need to go to the program director who works for the district? Do I need to go to Cal State LA to the people who are monitoring the program? What am I going to do with this one? Because I was getting complaints from my team. You know, they were just saying, Do something with her. <laughs> You're in charge, you know, help. So, I went home and I practiced my own medicine. I sat down with my journal and I did a dialogue with her. And I started out by venting. And this is a really good exercise to do. I just started out venting with my dominant hand. I called her all kinds of names and told her what a pain in the you know what she was. And I just went on and on. And then I put the pen in my non dominant hand. And the minute I started writing, I saw her face and she looked really frightened. And her voice said, I'm really scared. You're asking me to teach in a method I've never used before. And I'm afraid I'm going to make a mistake, and I'm going to look stupid. And um, I'm afraid. And I just had a, a total melting of my heart when I realized, oh, All that behavior. I mean, I know theoretically as a psychologist that people cover up fear with a lot of obnoxious behavior. I know that theoretically, but it hadn't sunk in yet until I did that journaling. And when I saw her face with that fear and I felt that energy from her, something shifted. I went back to uh, the school where she was teaching right after the Christmas holidays. I walked up the front walkway of the school. Her second grade class overlooked the front of the school. She came running out into the hall. And this was the first time she ever invited me into her classroom because all the other teachers had invited me in to help support them in implementing this program. She was the only one that didn't. And it was voluntary, so you know, my attitude was hands off. If she doesn't want us in there, we're not going in there. She came out, came running out, invited me in. She said, we're doing journaling. I would love for you to sit and observe the kids sharing. I was in shock. I walked into the classroom. I sat down. She has these second graders. And this is a district that's almost all Asian and Hispanic. 1981. Loaded with, like, Cambodian kids who have come over in boats where they've been in boats with dead bodies because of a belief about not throwing them over into the water. Uh, You know, Hispanic kids that have come from Mexico, Central and South America under great hardship. Um, just, you know, these kids have been through a lot of trauma. They started sharing and she had kids in there who were sharing journals about how their villages had been burned down and houses with flames coming out. All this kind of stuff was going on in this sharing. And of course I was in tears when it was all over. And I went up to her and I said, that's the most beautiful journal sharing group I've ever been privileged to witness and I thank you and she said well I went to Palisades High School I said oh interesting I live in the Palisades she said well we kept journals when I was in high school and I realized I was thinking about it and I realized how valuable it had been and so I decided to really give this a try and that was the result she got So the whole relationship turned around. Not only did she stop being an enemy, she became an ally. Because I asked her, I said, well, when people from the county come to observe what we're doing here, because word's getting around about all this arts program we've got integrated into academia here, and that there's a buzz out there, and they want to see what we're doing. I said, would you mind if I brought some people to observe your classroom? Oh, no, not at all, she says. I almost fell over. I was just like, "Whoa." And when I told my staff and I told them what I had done in my journal, because they knew about my journal work, all of them had studied with me, they were just like, you know jumping up and down. they said, "This is great, wonderful, you know." They just thought it was fabulous. But I never confronted her. I never made an enemy out of her. I never stood in front of her and said, "You know what? You're just trouble now, just cut it out." I never went to the principals. I never went to the superintendent. I never went to the project director. I didn't go to a higher authority in the system. I went to a higher authority in myself. I dealt with it internally. And that's how this work works. Because everything outside is a reflection of what's going on inside anyway. And of course, what we have inside is a reflection of what we grew up with. And if we want to change that, we can't change what it was out there that got imprinted in here. But we can sure do some changing inside. And when this changes, the stuff outside starts to change because our relationship with it changes. We see it differently. We see it through different eyes. One of my uh, spiritual teachers, um, Swami Muktananda, used to say, if you don't like the world you see, Change the prescription on your glasses. That means do some work inside. And that will change the outside world. And it's not about denial. It's not about let's put rose-colored glasses on and pretend it's not there. No. It's about do some work on yourself. Start changing your perception of things. And things will change in the outside world. And at this particular time, I think it's, it is more important than ever that we really, really get this message. That we stop this adversarial attitude. And I know, as the adult child of a, a compulsive gambler who was also bipolar, also you know in and out of mental hospitals, I know that it's real easy to vilify our parents. It's real easy, but it doesn't get us anywhere. In fact, it does damage. It does damage. So the point is, you have an inner family now. That's the only family that you can deal with. What wounded your parents that led them to their addictions? You have no idea. I do family constellations work based on Bert Hellinger's Uh, theories, he's a German um, therapist and I've seen people representing family members who are dead and I've seen what caused the pain that caused the addiction and I can only come away with compassion when you see how wounded people are and that their only way to cope with it was addiction because the pain was too great and all addiction, as you heard me say last night, is about narcotizing the inner child. We don't want to hear the inner child's feelings. We don't want to be in that inner child's body. It's too painful to be there. So we check out. And we check out through addiction. Addictive substances and behavior. We have to check out to numb that child down. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear it screaming and crying. We don't want to hear it anymore so it's like another drink and then the critical parent comes in now what happens on the teeter totter is we turn other people into our critical parent and then we get to be the victim we get to go into the addiction of righteous indignation he's the bad guy I'm the victim isn't it awful okay. that's an addiction that's, that's a biggie huge addiction I'm good, you're bad. Yeah. All that polarized thinking is what's gotten us where we are (laughs) in this world. And we've got to get off of that. We've just got to get off of that polarized teeter-totter. You know, I'm good, you're bad. You're smart, I'm stupid. You're enlightened, I'm not. You're sober, I'm not. You know, you can't do it anymore. It just isn't working. And it never did. Mm Mm-hmm. You can do it through the dialoguing because the only piece you're going to find is within yourself. And you can tell him, I miss you, I hate you, <laughs> I resent you, I, uh, I wish that so and such would happen. You can vent all of that with your dominant hand and then let him respond with your non-dominant hand. And as I said, I can't give you a little left brain formula on why this works. I could only tell you, and this is what scientists do, they do something over and over, and they watch. Do you get the same results every time? Yes, yes, yes. We get the same results just about every time we do this exercise. Um, you know, Marcia, my associate here, will tell you, uh, we do this work a lot with people from all over the world. We're training professionals to do it all over the world, and we, we get the same results. You know so that 's pretty scientific you just you take that same replicable exercise out of the book and you assign it to a whole bunch of people and you see what happens and All I can tell you is that 's what happens. People come to terms with stuff that they couldn 't resolve they feel more peace inside uh, they feel that there has been um, something has been just somehow. Uh, eliminated from their life as like the pain in the side thorn in the side That that's the kind of feedback I get from these exercises yes uh huh I need to let somebody else ask uh, The Power of Your Other Hand is the book that has chapter 8 has a chapter about relationships and doing these exercises in the context of relationship. And in fact, that's a very good introductory book to my work because it has chapters applying that dialogue method to everything: health, spirituality, relationships, inner child, etc. Creativity, breaking through blocks, so on and so forth. Yes, in the back. Well, there's another there's another way to look at it though. Um, they did the best they could. What they did wounded me. I'm not going to erase that. And I'm responsible for my own healing, and I can heal. It's like, yes, we can. Yes, we can heal. Because if you get into the, uh, the trap of the damage was so great that it's beyond me healing it, then you really reabuse yourself and i know we can heal ourselves cuz i've done it and i have seen hundreds of people do it with this method that's why i've dedicated my life to this because people get out of depression when they do my work they get out of victim they get out of helplessness and they realize well you know that was that was their their burden and i don't want to carry my parents burden anymore that's why i have a big question mark around it you know rush to forgiveness Because forgiveness is like a band-aid. Oh, yeah, I'll forgive you, and then everything will be all right. Or if somebody comes to you and says, Will you forgive me after they've treated you really badly? It's like, "Mm, I don't think so. Because it's not about that. It's not about me forgiving you. It's about you did what you did, and I'll acknowledge that. You're acknowledging it, and that's all we need to do. We need to acknowledge that it happened. We need to acknowledge it, and that's all. And, And it doesn't need to go beyond that except acknowledging that they were so wounded that they could not be there for you. And you know, it's all on a grade, it's a, it's a scale <laughs> because it's the human condition that we're talking about, all right? Everybody has had problems with their parents. Everybody feels their parents let them down in one way or another. I have never met anybody who can't say, oh, well, you know, this is what my parent did or didn't do. But that's the human condition. Let's stop pathologizing that, okay? Because everybody's got a reason to be resentful toward their parents because we put our parents in an impossible situation. We put them in the role of God, and we want them to be perfect, and they're not, you know? And and we do that with our leaders. We do it with everybody. We want somebody else to be the good parent. So, what I'm saying to you is if you will become your own good parent, you're responsible for that, and that is well within your realm of capability and power. And when you take responsibility for who you are today, how you're treating yourself today, every minute from today forward, how am I treating my body, And am I, am I eating healthy food, am I getting enough rest? Am I getting enough recreation? Am I doing work that's creative, that really feeds me more than financially, but feeds my soul? Am I doing all those things? Because that's the only thing I'm responsible for right now. And when I do that, I touch other people's lives in a very different way. I have an impact on other people's lives. And when I reach out to help other people, the way I do in my work, If I do it from a full cup where my inner child is being fed, I'm sending a very different message than if I were all worn out and I were codependent and not taking care of my inner child. Because what, you know, I'll tell you, the biggest offenders that I come across in terms of not doing their inner child work are therapists, therapists who are worn out, overworked, seeing too many clients. I know because they come to me. And I'm not saying this about all therapists, but I get a huge percentage of therapists who come to my trainings, come to my workshops, who are a wreck. They're a wreck because they're doing too much. In their schooling, nobody ever said, oh, you know what, by the way, you should be taking care of yourself. No, it's all about book learning about taking care of everybody else. Nurses are another group. We do a lot of work in hospitals and with nurses and people in the medical profession. They're a wreck. They're overworked. Teachers, overworked. They're giving all this stuff out, but nobody ever said, oh, what about your inner child? Whatever happened to that? What about your body? What about your emotions? Are you paying attention to that? No, they don't think they have a right to because their profession has trained them to be codependent. And so that's where they're stuck. What kind of a lesson are we teaching our children? You know, What kind of a message is that for sick people in hospitals if the nursing staff is burned out? It's, it's very sad, and we need to look at that because what we do inside here affects the rest of the world. But we need to get out of that adversarial position, and that's what's so great about this right-left-hand stuff we can take all that battling that goes out in the outside world, bring it back home where it belongs. What's the battle that's going on inside of me? Okay. What's that battle all about? That's what we need to look at. What are the parts of me that are at war? When I can look at that, then the outside world is going to start to ease off from my projections. I'm not going to have to make other people into my enemies. I'm going to look for what's common in us. That teacher and I cared about her second grade class. She really did. And that was what was common. And we ended up exactly where we wanted to be, giving those children a program that worked for them. It was trauma treatment, and it was academically beneficial. Those are the two things that we were doing for those children, and they needed both things. They needed to learn to read and write in English, and they were doing it in a journal, and they needed to release their trauma from all the immigration experiences they'd had. The loss of their country and their homeland and their family members in violent situations. So we ended up meeting in the middle at the place that we both had as our goal, is to help these children. And we got past all the ego stuff and the arguing. Because why? I just did my inner work, that's all. And we resolved it. It sounds magical, it sounds strange, but it works. That's all I can tell you from 35 years of doing it. You know what? Don't, don't, don't conjecture until you've done it, because we're going to be wasting time talking about that. You really need to do it before you say what's going to happen. Okay? Don't make up your mind beforehand. Give it a shot. Try it. Okay? Just sit down and try it. Use one of my books. Use one of the handout sheets. Take the guidelines from there and just do it. But there's, there, I, I don't want to go into any discussion about what if and what, you know, none of that. Just try it. Okay, anybody else have a question here about th- this teeter-totter? Where? Oh, yes, uh-huh. Yeah, the protection. Uh, boundaries and limits, that's it. I th- I'm glad that you mentioned that, Dow, because I really believe that those are my two major contributions to the inner child Movement and to inner family work. That's why I call it inner family work anymore. I don't call it inner child work because the protective parent and learning how to deal with the critical parent through the BRAT is essential to my work. That's what makes the difference. That's what pushes people through depression and that sort of thing. I would like to introduce... um, A woman who took my training program, who's uh, from uh, Southern California, Elizabeth Preston, and she um, took the training and has a long history in Tulsa programs, uh, has been through the mill (laughs) in relationships, is in a really good one now. Her husband's with her. And has also done visioning uh, using one of my books to really create the life she wanted. And uh, so I asked her to come today and
1: just share a little bit with you. I'm Elizabeth Preston, and it's really a privilege to be here. Uh, the two women here, Marsha Nelson and Lucia, have had an extremely dramatic uh, impact on my life. Um, just so that we have kind of a qualifying, um, I am not a child of just one alcoholic. Both of my parents were alcoholic. I can remember very at a very early age, lying in bed praying and say, Dear God, please make my parents well. It didn't happen. I can remember sitting on the floor um, in front of the bathroom door and just hoping against hope that my mother would come out of the bathroom alive because she went in, she was threatening to take her life. And I remember sitting on that floor Uh, feeling so terribly alone. And as it turned out, 15 years later, I got a telephone call from my father saying that, in fact, my older brother had done the follow-through. He had committed suicide in the bathroom, just as my mother had threatened she would. Um, It wasn't until many years, I spent a lot of time being alone uh, in in a crowd, I always needed an entourage around. I see some hands and heads going up and down. I felt that if I had people, if I had houses, if I had education, I had dropped out of school when I was a sophomore in college. I tried a lot of different things. None of them really worked. And then finally, in 1989, I was in Chicago, Illinois, I was trying to finish up a master's degree at age 52. It had taken me that long to finally get my act together so that perhaps I could be educated. That would be the thing. And I remember being in tears, and a friend invited me. She said, you know, I'm going to go to this meeting. They call it ACOA. Maybe that might be a place that you'd like to go. So in 1989, I walked into the rooms of ACOA, which is very often now called ACA. I remember crying through the entire meeting because so many things were being said that related to my aloneness. And what happened after that, I had, uh, this is kind of a funny thing, I needed one last course in my master's degree and they said um, that I could take a one hour that was called, What About Us Children of Alcoholics? And I thought, that's it, that's the course I'll take. I walked in, I let my hair down completely. I told them my life story, which I think sometimes we ACA have gotten into the habit of doing, because it's our qualifying. And you know what, I looked around and found out every one of them was a therapist, and they were trying to study what ACAs were doing. I can't tell you how embarrassed I was. But nevertheless, they were very gentle with me, and they said, just keep going to those ACA meetings. I think that'll be a good thing for you. Well, I did. And, um, and things did get better. However, I kept running into the same me. I kept running into a situation where it just didn't seem like I could get away from the aloneness. And then finally, in 1993... I had had a very serious automobile accident and uh, I had to give up work for an entire year. And so I went to an art therapist who started telling me about the work of Lucia Cappicchione. And because I'd already lost the use of the right arm, she started having me um, write with my left hand. And we did some really wonderful work. And that was in 1993. And that was a missing piece for me. And so, for about 10 years, I journaled, just as Lucia has suggested that all of you do. It gave me a wonderful sense of peace. And ultimately, in 2003, I came into Lucia and Marsha's training. And um, I did what they said. What a concept! I followed directions. And consequently, they gave me the confidence that I could begin making a life for myself that worked. There were a lot of things that had been going on in my life. I uh, had fought the depression that had been the family character. I had to take care of the alcoholism that had been a family characteristic for generations. I made a lot of awarenesses. I brought this along Because one of the things that has been so wonderful about the work that Lucia and Marcia imparted with me was the way to begin forgiving and then begin believing that I could take the V off of the top of my forehead. I did not need to be a victim anymore. That in fact, perhaps, all I needed to do is see my life differently. To this day, I do journal. And you know, I worked with a college professor who had known paralysis. I worked with him as a case study uh, through my training with Lucia. He had an entire college class that were rebels like you can't believe. They were giving him such a hard time And I had him do exactly what Lucia had done. He did his inner child work, and he wrote to that class and said, I don't know why you guys don't like me. I don't know why I'm not getting my point across. What is there that I can do for you? Interestingly enough, when Thanksgiving holiday was over, he went back to that college class. A little gal came up to him and said, could we change the way this um, setting is? Could we be in a circle so we're closer to you? You seem too far away. Everything began to change. The people who had not liked his class dropped out. The people who wanted to be there were, and they all got to do what they needed to do. And I guess that is really... If I can impart anything to you at all, it is that we have the power of the other hand. I now have a life that works for me. I shed the trappings of a large home. I live in a little cabin up at Mount Baldy. I'm in nature. I don't need the things that I thought I needed. But as you look at this carefully, you'll see that my children are in this collage. My wonderful new husband is in this collage. I'd like to introduce him. His name is Rob Preston. And Rob and I have been married now for a little more than two years. And we just went through a very difficult period. He had to have a quadruple bypass. Very scary business. But we have each other, and we have a life that works. And I attribute it to the work of Lucia, to the supervision and support that I've watched Marsha give Lucia because they're wonderful partners together. And they touch hundreds of people's lives. And Rob and I are now able to be able to do many things together. We have joy together. I have a work that really touches me because I'm able to work with cancer victims who've just been diagnosed, and I teach them the power of the other hand. So thank you for letting me be here this afternoon. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. These are uh, the kinds of stories that I see all the time, and it makes uh, my life absolutely joyful and uh, of course my partnership with Marcia has been incredible we have never had an argument we're in business together we've traveled together and we have never argued about anything we just don't we do our own work and we would never get on a teeter totter with each other it just has never happened and I think for myself that's one of the great achievements of my life to have a business partnership with someone that is so harmonious and so productive has just been a huge gift, so I feel very grateful and I know it 's because we 're both doing the work you know it's it 's a double uh, approach you know it 's not just me doing it all myself. she works on herself, she has a fabulous n- new marriage five year five six right, and um, i 've watched her move from a marriage where she was on a teeter totter. And got off of it and onto a really wonderful partnership. So when people fall in love, they get on the positive teeter-totter. They think the other person is the all-loving parent. And they get to be the adored child. And then when the critical parent comes out, or the all-loving parent is sick or cranky, uh, then the teeter-totter shifts, and then the person who was the adored child will turn into a critical parent. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you there for me? Etc. And they just go back and forth from criticizing each other to controlling each other, manipulating each other, and it just goes back and forth, and it destroys relationships. And politically, it's not a partnership anymore; it's a power struggle. And uh, we cannot be parents and children with each other. We just can't. And people do this to me all the time. They project parent on me. They want me to be the good mother. And when I say no to them, they get upset. But I have a protective parent, I just say no. They want to be upset, that's their problem. If I have limits and boundaries and I know what they are, then I say no. I just did that earlier. I, am, I don't want to waste time talking about shoulda, coulda, wouldas, what ifs. And I'm very clear about that. So if somebody gets upset by that response, I don't know whether she did. But you saw me role model that. I just simply won't go there because I know what will happen if we go there, we 'll waste a lot of time and we 'll never arrive at anything because you can 't know anything until you do it so there's that 's all left brain stuff, you know, and I know where it comes from because I do it too. you know well, what if so and such happens what if it 's coming from fear? you know just jump in and try it, just put a pen in your other hand and try it that 's all I say. <laughs> You do inner family work, you take care of yourself, you stop expecting other people to rescue you, you stop needing to rescue other people, and you're off the teeter totter. You stop needing to control others, you control your own life and stop trying to control others. It's as simple as that. It's real simple. It's not easy. It's not easy but it's simple it's a very simple concept and when I, when I uh, get feedback from my people that I've trained they always say I just think of that teeter totter I see the teeter totter my oh, things are not working in this relationship oh I must be on the teeter totter okay how am I going to get off of it sit down get out the journal start dialoguing with it no I'm working on a book on that now yeah I, on the teeter totter Yeah, I'm working on a book on that now. But my books will take you there. If you do the inner child, recovery of your inner child, and this playbook, the inner child playbook, if you do that work... You will know how to get off the teeter-totter. And if you do, the power of your other hand, and especially Chapter 8, the exercises in there will get you off the teeter-totter. I've just decided to put it all together into a a book, because I think relationship stuff right now, not just male-female or same-sex relationships, romantic stuff. I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about everything. Because we do the same thing with our employers, our employees, our neighbors, our friends. We do it all over the place. The politics just doesn't work. Power politics in relationships doesn't work. Where somebody's more powerful than the other, it just doesn't work. That's a parent-child dynamic, and we need to get off of that. This, 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 and this. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I didn't pay her to say that. (laughs) Okay, yeah, right, right. Um I wanted to open the floor for anybody uh to share any any highlights of this conference for you and certainly any highlights of the work you've done with me. Yes. That's what that's what I call either the new age or the recovery perfectionist it's part of the inner critic and it will push you and push you and push you with shoulds it's it's all sugar coated because it says that it's for your best interest because it's more growth and it's more tools and it's more workshops and it's more therapy but it really is uh, an adjunct it's an ally of the inner critic the critical parent that will drive you crazy and make you think you're not enough And you don't have enough. And you don't know enough. And it'll drive you crazy. So when you got into that, protective parent is the one that says, is this in my best interest? Is this really in my best interest? Who is the my we're talking about, the inner child? Is this in my inner child's best interest? My physical needs, my emotional needs. You nailed it. You got it. That's quick learning. You got it. And if you continue asking yourself that question, your protective parent is going to stay in place taking care of that child. And if your nurturing parent is listening to what your child really needs, which it sounds like it is, then uh, you're going to to be just fine with this. Yeah. Thank you. Any other um, highlights anybody want to share? Somebody had a hand up over here. Yes. You know what? I, I'm going to tell you that we don't have time for that. I just want to hear a brief highlight about what you got out of this weekend. Okay. Yeah. I would like to say that the teeter daughter, I think, is really what I came here for because this is a relationship I wanted to avoid. Mm-hmm. Right. Good. Well, that's why I want to write a book about it. I just feel that it's it's important enough at this time in history that we really need to get out of these polarized Relationships because they absolutely don't work, and uh, there is a way out. Yes? I really enjoyed the brat exercise in the script, because it's by far my,
1: my biggest challenge. And mm-hmm. A lot of it's mental, but by writing it, it really put it concrete. Right. And it was probably the most productive
0: use, like, like I don't know how to express my anger, mm-hmm. and that was the most healthy expression of anger. Right. right? And also for Expressing Anger, my book, The Art of Emotional Healing, which in paperback was called Living with Feeling. We had the, uh, I mean, hardback, we have those here. Um, That book has arts activities, expressive arts therapy activities, for nine families of emotions, and anger is one of them. And that includes clay, ripping up paper, making collages out of the torn paper, drawing, scribbling, using crayons on large sheets of paper, making angry masks. There's all kinds of ways to celebrate emotions, and every artist knows this. The driving force behind all the arts is emotions. The arts are a form of emotional expression. Every artist knows this. And so if you can celebrate your emotions, especially the ones that you've disowned, if you can celebrate them and go, hey, it's all right to be angry. You know what? I'm going to do an angry dance. You know what? I'm going to make an angry mask. I'm going to get a big paper bag and I'm going to make a big mask on it with fangs and teeth and you know, scary eyes and and just play it out because when we deny those emotions, that's when they backfire. And I'm thrilled to hear that you got that out of the inner brat work because the inner brat work is a key in breaking through in this work and that gets a lot of people out of depression I I mean I've seen a lot of people move through depression with that exercise just letting the inner brat out stop stuffing it let it out but do it in a safe way and that's the key you said it a safe place to let the anger out not at somebody else not through road rage and not at yourself because the anger is going to either be turned out or in Emotions only have two places to go. Out or we're going to act them out or we're going to act them in. Or we're going to express them through some creative form that's safe. And that's what we're doing here. Great. One more sharing and then I think we're going to wrap this up. we I have not looked at my watch. I'm totally in my right brain. I don't know what time it is. So, yeah. Yes. Where would you start? As an ACA person, what book would I start with? Recovery of Your Inner Child. And the playbook, it's a blank book that's got all the exercises in it. So the paper's are all there. All you have to do is do the exercises. That's the, that's the recovery book in my set of books here. Yeah.